0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galina Limarenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at the PFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Lauren Aguirre about her new book, The Memory Thief and the Secrets Behind How We Remember, a medical mystery. The remarkable true story of a team of doctors who, throughout years of scientific sleuthing and observant care, discover a surprising connection between opioids and memory, one that holds promise and peril for any one of us. How could you lose your memory overnight? And what would that uh, would that mean? The day neurologist Jed uh, Barash sees the baffling brain scan of a young patient with a devastating amnesia marks the beginning of a quest to answer those questions. Through the prism of this fascinating story, Aguirre goes... On to examine how researchers tease out the fundamental nature of memory and the many mysteries still to be solved. But at its core, Aguirre's genre-bending and deeply reported book is about paying attention to the things that initially don't make sense, like the amnestic syndrome, and how these mysteries can move science closer to an ever-evolving version of the truth. Well, Lauren, welcome to the show. Hi, Galena. I'm very happy to be here. Oh, it's really great to have you to hear today with us. So as we have witnessed the unprecedented times of the recent global pandemic, well, in the midst of which we're really still are, but hopefully, you know, it's uh, tending towards the end. I was wondering if you would reflect on how has it affected you and your work and maybe some main takeaways that you have gathered from this experience. Sure. So
1: um, I was extremely fort- fortunate, um, both personally and professionally. Um, I was at a point in the book where I had done all the major research and the kind of research that really needs to happen face to face with people, where you can see their surroundings and get to know them and um, have them get to know you enough to trust you to tell their story. Um, so when the pandemic arrived, I was really at a point where I could do follow-up interviews over zoom and, and FaceTime and what have you. Um, and that worked, of course, for them, it was, it was pretty bad because experiments had to be put on hold. Um, so that was, that was very different for them. But, but for me, um, it allowed me to focus on finishing up writing the book and also saying, okay, well, I guess I need to stop writing because really nothing else is going to be happening anytime soon. Um, and then personally, I was also extremely fortunate because, um, you know, my work, I was able to continue doing and, um, you know, my kids, the ones who weren't home anymore came home um, and we were able to spend the kind of time together that, you know, hadn't happened since they were in elementary school. Um, so that kind of closeness with the family um, was, it'll, it'll never happen again. So that was really um, something to treasure And then, um, you know, it was clear how fortunate we were also in that uh, my daughter works with seniors in a senior living center. Um, And so, you know, she would just come home and um, tell me about, you know, the devastation there and how hard it was for the seniors when she had to go around and say, we can't do activities anymore. Um, You can't leave your room. Uh, It was just, Devastating for them, and then um, she did actually bring coronavirus home to us unwittingly. She was asymptomatic, so so four of the six of us in our family had it early on and early on in the pandemic. But you know, we didn't we didn't suffer. We had family time. Um, You know, I think we just learned to be more grateful for what we have.
0: Oh, that's excellent. I just hope you don't have uh, any long lasting uh, uh, sort of uh, symptoms after and hope you recover.
1: Yeah, I did lose my sense of smell for a while, but, but it's mm-hmm. back. Um, so
0: I think I'm okay. We'll see. Excellent. So can you tell us a little bit more about yourself?
1: Sure. So um, I grew up in the Boston area where I still live. Um, and uh, my father was a mathematician, my mother was an English teacher. So I sort of combine those two loves. I always loved science. I loved writing. I loved languages. um, And it occurred to me that uh, I could perhaps put those two loves together and become a science journalist. And I was um, fortunate in that uh, MIT at the time was just starting up a science writing program. Um, So I applied and um, got in somewhat to my surprise. Um, and it was just a fantastic education because you had to learn all the core, you had to take all the core courses and, and labs. Um, but then I also um, got to take classes on, on science writing and communication. Um, and so it was, it was the perfect education and it really gave me the confidence um, to believe that I could, you know, if I worked hard enough, I could understand something And then the next challenge was, okay, now that I understand it, how do I explain it to someone else? And how do I motivate them to want to understand it? Because, you know, ultimately, I want to translate my love of learning and share the fascination of whatever new thing I learned with other people. Um, So, you know, being at MIT really gave me the the background and the courage um, to do this job. And then I um, from MIT, I went to Nova, which is a science documentary series on public television here in the United States. Um, for UK listeners, Horizon is sort of the, the sister series. And so that was an anthology series. And I got to um, cover all kinds of topics. It could be human origins, it could be art restoration, it could be you know doomsday asteroids um and then i also i launched our website so i got to explore other formats for science storytelling um we had podcasts you know we started a digital magazine we did these real time online adventures um and um but throughout so it was an interesting challenge to say how can i use this medium best to tell the story i want to tell mm. um but it always comes back to you know who is your audience, what are their expectations, and where are they? You know, are they in the car driving? Do they have five minutes or five hours, or are they on the couch? And what do they know? Um, and then how can you lead them through? Because even though you're not technically interacting with them, you are having a sort of conversation um, and trying to lead them along the path um, okay, they know this now, what, what do I need to say to make them interested in the next thing that I have to say? And that was, you know, true in the book as well. There was just a much, much bigger canvas to draw on to do that. Um, so yeah. And, you know, in terms of also what I learned at Nova, which is just as true in, in my book, The Memory Thief, I, um, it was so interesting in certain fields when there wasn't a lot of data or there was a lot of confusion, um, how tightly people clung to their beliefs as if, you know, science is a belief system. It, it shouldn't be about beliefs, but it didn't really matter the field. You know, we, we did a story on the restoration of the Sistine Chapel, Michelangelo's frescoes, and um, the restoration involved cleaning them. Basically, they were filthy with centuries of of smoke. So they were brown. And a famous art historian had built his career explaining the various shades of brown and what they meant. So, you know, when they started cleaning it, it was all these gorgeous hues. He just couldn't, he couldn't understand it and he couldn't accept it. So, you know, that comes up again and again and again, that people have built their careers around a certain idea And it's very hard when new information comes along that contradicts that. It's hard to integrate that or to say, well, this thing I've been working on for 20 years isn't quite right.
0: Mm. Oh, that's fascinating. And uh, your passion for science, uh, you can really, really feel it throughout the book. So I was wondering, have you ever had an inkling of uh, pursuing the actual science career or you still not really? Um, I
1: did. I almost changed majors. Um, I really loved organic chemistry, which surprised mm-hmm. me. Um, you know, maybe it was it was one of the few courses that somehow came naturally to me and not to others so much and um, that was a nice position to be in for once when, when something wasn't so hard. But I realized I really didn't have the patience to focus in on on one topic for for a whole career. Um, And so being a science journalist really suited me better because I got to explore so many different topics and speak to so many different experts. It's a really privileged position that you, you get to go and talk to people about, you know, their whole life's worth of research. You get the highlights. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I just love talking to scientists. I'm always so, so energized when I finish a conversation with one of them, but what was interesting about writing my book was that it wasn't uh, the lifetime of research. I was actually following, following it as it happened, which is different. You go down the blind alleys and you don't know they're blind alleys until you get to the end. So it was quite different um, from covering, say, stories that we would do for NOVA.
0: And along your career journey, what roles did mentors play and perhaps your colleagues as well? And maybe you have uh, some advice for um, younger aspiring journalists.
1: <laughs> well, you know, I learned something different from, from everyone that I worked with. Um, some people I learned how to negotiate because a lot of producing is, you know, getting access to something or getting people to believe they should talk to you. Um, I learned persistence, um, but most of all, I learned to listen. Um, I already had the sort of prepare, prepare, prepare in my, it's just part of my constitution. Um, but you go in with your plan and then you need to, uh, be willing to, you know, stray from it and respond to what's happening in front of you. So some of the best advice I got from an editor that I had worked with at Nova, I, I, had a coffee with her when I was just starting out on the book. And I I said, you know, what advice do you have for me? And she said, Lauren, you're always very well prepared, but make Mm -hmm. sure you listen. Just let the other person talk and talk and talk and talk because you'll learn something that you didn't even realize you you needed to ask about.
0: So this marriage of your really unbridled curiosity about science uh, combined with a beautiful writing culminated in your latest book, The Memory Thief. So can you tell us what is it about, and how did you come to writing it?
1: So um, it's a story about a strange new um, type of amnesia caused by opioid overdose, um, and then what that can tell us about how medical science advances, um, about the science of memory, and then about possible cures or treatments for memory disorders, most notably Alzheimer's disease. Um, and I came across this story, you know, I've was probably the seed was planted uh, before the story even began. So back in 2009, I had a, an experience of, you know, dramatic memory loss myself, where um, mm-hmm. I had this aura um, that came over me early one morning, I was probably working too early. Um, and, you know, suddenly, I was overcome by this feeling of impending doom. And then at the same time, my my memories basically slipped away. So, you know, I had awareness without knowledge. I, I didn't know who I was, what my name was, you know, where in history I was. You know, nothing made sense, and it was it was so terrifying that I lay face down on the floor and shut my eyes and waited for it to pass. Um, and then, of course, I went to my doctor, and she said, "Oh, that sounds like a seizure, and you might have a brain tumor." So from there, it was a long kind of journey of lots of tests and lots of second opinions and, you know, someone saying you need to have brain surgery. So one of the people that I asked for informal formal second opinions was uh, Jed Barish, the neurologist who discovered this amnestic syndrome that's the topic of my book. And he was a neighbor, and I asked him to come over and, and take a look at my scan, and he did, and he, he looked through it, and he said, you know what? you're going to be fine. This is not a big deal. You just need to take your medicine every day. Uh, I would not have surgery. And mm-hmm. um, I was really struck by, you know, the pragmatism there um, and and his decency. Um, so, you know, I followed his advice and I never had the surgery and um, I take my medicine and I've never had another seizure. So it just left me with an appreciation for how weird brains can be. You know, why did this suddenly happen to me? Because um, I do have a sort of, um, I have a brain lesion. Um, but aside from that, it's never affected me to my knowledge. So so it left me with that really deep appreciation for how scary it is to lose your memory, which honestly I'd never really thought about before. Um, so then when, uh, when Barish started to come across these Um, people who had overdosed on opioids and and lost the ability to form new memories. Um, That just seemed really interesting to me in a way to explore the brain and explore how science advances um, really in depth in a way that that you can't even do in in an hour-long documentary.
0: This is definitely an extraordinary experience that you described and uh... It's uh, quite admirable, admirable that you can uh, share uh, this experience. So thank you, thank you for that.
1: Oh, you're welcome. I, I think it's really important. You know, people are, there's a stigma around epilepsy. There's a stigma around a lot of diseases still, um, including substance use disorder, which is um, a topic in my book. And I just think the more that people are willing to talk about it, um, the better.
0: So your book goes into a very nice science so let's start and delve a little bit into that. So, what is memory, and where can we find it?
1: Um, so, memory—you know, technically speaking, we all think we know what it is, but it's mm-hmm. it's, the, it's the ability to encode, store, and then re- remember or recall consciously or unconsciously information, skills, experience. You know, we when we think about memory, when we talk about oh, I have a bad memory or I have a good memory. We're talking about really one type of memory, explicit memory, the things that we know that we know. Um, But that isn't all of memory. Um, And then there's the learning part of it. So learning is intertwined with memory. Uh, you, You can't form a memory unless you learn, which is acquiring new information in a way that your knowledge or your behavior might change. So, you know, without, without learning, there's no memory possible. As to, you know, where it is, uh, <laughs> that's, um, that's something that's still being worked out and will always be worked out. Um, it isn't certainly in one part of the brain or the other. So the hippocampus is really uh, plays a starring role in my book because you can't form new explicit memories. Um, without a functioning hippocampus, um, so but but it's not like all your memories live in hippocampus. They mm-hmm. live in distributed networks of connected neurons across the brain in the relevant brain areas that kind of make up that memory. So, if it's what's called an episodic memory, a memory of an event. Um, It will, though, those neurons will be uh, in the places of your brain that process sight and smell and sound and emotions, um, and of course the hippocampus. But, you know, some people would argue um, that it's not even in specific networks or ensembles of neurons, it's in certain patterns of brain activity, um, and that you're sort of born with. Uh, a huge collection of pre existing patterns of brain activity. And then as you go through life, um, it's sort of a job of matching up those patterns of brain activity to experience. So, whatever state your brain was in at a certain point in time, um, you know, when you got the news that um, you had coronavirus, um, that is a certain pattern. Um, but you could, you could theoretically get rid of all those neurons and still have that memory because you could recreate the pattern with some other ensemble of neurons. So there's this famous, you know, the Jennifer Aniston neurons. And, um, I talk about this briefly in, in my book, um, the idea that the memory of Jennifer Aniston is encoded in certain neurons, but, you know, one of the scientists I interviewed, said, you know, you are welcome to erase every single one of my Jennifer Aniston neurons with a magic laser, and I, I guarantee you I will still remember who she is. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, yes, yeah, so memory is, is many things. It's the explicit memory that I talked about, um, both episodic, the events that we remember, and then what's called semantic. Um, so knowledge for facts, like who is president or you know, what color is the sky? And then there's the implicit memory, which we think about less, which is like procedural memory, how to ride a bike, and then kind of Pavlovian or habit memory, sort of learned, learned responses like, you know, the bell rings, and you salivate because you know that's become associated over time with the arrival of, of dinner. But all these categories also sort of bleed into each other or rely on each other. You know, you need memories of events to learn how to ultimately ride a bicycle. So these are all kind of human constructs or, or, or names that we have to put on different types of memory to talk about it. But then we also have to remember that, you know, these are the categories that we made up and our, our brain could care less about the categories.
0: Uh, which cat- category would muscle memory go? Is that uh, implicit?
1: I suppose so, but you know, I didn't I didn't really interview anyone or, or read about muscle memory, but I, I think that's probably what people mean in the sense that you don't you don't think your brain is involved, you just you, you mm-hmm. do it like you play tennis because you played a million times. i um, ride
0: a bike. Mm-hmm. Right. So what are specifically opioids and how are they connected to memory? So opioids,
1: we have what's called endogenous opioids. We have our own opioids floating around in our body. Um, and then there are exogenous opioids like morphine, heroin, fentanyl, um, oxycodone, all of those things. And they, they do multiple things. But the thing that they do related, um, you know, that we really care about is they, um, they ameliorate pain. And they also create a sense of euphoria. So, But in terms of this book, um, opioids, it turns out, under certain circumstances, can damage the hippocampus. And um, the way they do that um, involves somewhat nerdy science. But basically, um, there are two main classes of neurons. There are the excitatory neurons that, you know, when you think about the brain, that's what you think about. A neuron gets enough input, and then it fires and it passes the signal on kind of blindly. But then there's this other category of neurons, which are fewer in number, but um, much more powerful in a way, really the brains of the system. And they're called inhibitory neurons. And their job is to keep things under control. So they're sort of timing, gating mechanisms. And um, one scientist referred to them as they're kind of like the bouncers at the bar, And you know, without them, you know, someone slipped them a drink, and and they all fell asleep. You would have you would have utter chaos. So opioids, when they bind to uh, receptors on inhibitory neurons, they shut them down. So suddenly, you know, the bouncers aren't there, and your excitatory neurons start firing uncontrollably. So um, and if they're firing enough, they will kind of use up all the resources, all the energy. And kind of burn themselves out and ultimately die. So that that is the um, best explanation for why, in some people, and it's a very small fraction, in some people who overdose on fentanyl, they wake up, um, you know, the next morning with a severely damaged hippocampus and the inability to form new memories. So
0: can you give us a glimpse of the story that uh, you're telling your book?
1: So, um, I actually opened the book in a sort of flash forward with a young man whose story I fall, follow throughout the book. Um, I called him Owen. And he, um, he had a very um, kind of obsessive relationship with memory even before this happened to him. He was very, very concerned about memory and about forgetting things. And he also had a very long standing substance use disorder um, with opioids and, and other drugs. So, um, so he had actually been sober for 18 months when he got some news that most people would consider great news. He, like me, had had these auras and was, was told you might have a brain tumor. And, um, he was actually pretty ecstatic about that because it would give him what he thought was permission to go back to using fentanyl, um, Mm. So, you know, society says that's bad, you know, his family says it's bad, and he didn't want to let anyone down. But cancer was the perfect justification for him to go back to using. And then when he got the news that actually, you know, he was fine, and there was no tumor, he was so devastated that he went out and used fentanyl um, and woke up the next morning uh, with the ability, you know, to basically remember things for only about 30 seconds. And his doctors had no idea what what had happened, and and sent him home to live with his family, you know, with a prescription to drink more water. Um, So then I went back from there to the beginning of the story, which was in 2012, when Jed Barish came across the first known patient um, to develop this syndrome, who had taken what he thought was heroin. Um, But, you know, as we're learning, fentanyl is increasingly being mixed in with, with heroin and with other drugs. And unless you know to test for it, you're not going to know it's there because it doesn't, um, it doesn't show up on standard talk screens and people often don't know what they're taking. Mm. So, um, you know, and he had this very, very strange pattern, just like Owens, of damage just to the hippocampus. And this is really unusual. It, you know, it can happen um, sometimes with, with a virus um, or with a heart attack, but it's extremely rare and to see it so precisely defined on both sides of the brain and the rest of the brain completely unharmed. So um, Barish worked with other doctors in Massachusetts and um, to put the word out through the Department of Public Health. And eventually they gathered 14 such cases. Um, and then it spread to, they found cases in West Virginia and across, across the country. Um, so it, it became clear that this this was a real thing. Still hard to say, you know, what the scope of it was, like how many people are, are affected because, um, you know, if someone comes into a hospital after an overdose and they're confused, it's very easy to chalk it up to, well, they overdosed, of course they're confused. And then they often want to leave the hospital as soon as they can. They're a marginalized population. Um, people don't, you know, sad to say, but care about them in the same way that they would care about, you know, a a terrible syndrome that afflicted children. Mm. So, um, so, but Owen, then I I bring the story back to Owen, the young man who, who overdosed at the beginning of the book, because once he kind of came out of his immediate fog, um, he actually went online and found an article that I wrote about the syndrome. And that's how he figured out, oh, that's what happened to me. Um, and he reached out to the neurologists involved and agreed to be tested at um, University of California, San Francisco at the Memory and Aging Center because you know, he, he figured, well, I've, I've really uh, done a terrible thing to myself, which might be permanent, but what can I do to help others? And that's a theme that comes up again and again in the book in terms of the critical role of patients in, in helping medical science advance. And so he went uh, to the memory and aging center and got tested and his hippocampus had shrunk by 10%. So between, um, you know, before the overdose and after, because they did have the MRI before, they could tell really precisely. And they could tell that it really was just the hippocampus. And that was the only part of his brain that lost volume. And then his memory He's extremely intelligent, so they did um, extensive neuropsychological testing, and he scored near the top of the chart for executive functioning in terms of the ability to plan and reason, but pretty much at the bottom um, for episodic memory. Not surprisingly, because his hippocampus works very, very poorly. So um, he scores like someone would with Alzheimer's disease, and that's where the kind of the connection with Alzheimer's disease comes in, because um, Alzheimer's is also sort of ground zero is the hippocampus. Um, And from there, though, it spreads out to other brain regions, and um, you slowly, so you start with just memory problems in the the typical Alzheimer's, and then you slowly lose the ability to, to plan and to speak and ultimately to move. But, you know, the question that occupied the minds of these researchers was, you know, is it more than just, you know, the hippocampus is involved? Can we use this insight to help us develop tools to better understand Alzheimer's disease and maybe even to treat it? So there was um, a famous case back in the, I think it was the 80s, of another group of people with substance use disorders who overdosed on um, heroin um, contaminated or synthetic heroin contaminated with um, a toxin, which turned out to cause all the symptoms of Parkinson's disease. So um, that was the basis for the first animal model for Parkinson's disease, the first way to test treatments for Parkinson's disease. So the hope was well, you know, if we can figure out and show that opioids really do damage the hippocampus in this predictable way could that form the basis for an animal model for testing drugs for Alzheimer's disease? So that was kind of one connection. Another connection was, what about people who are taking opioids, you know, often as prescribed, but high dose long-term for chronic pain? Is there something that's happening um, that is less dramatic than this all-out assault on the hippocampus, but still affecting the inhibitory neurons and sort of interfering with memory processing at a low level ongoing every day. Um, And so, you know, the question is, is that subtly impacting memory in ways that are not obvious, especially in older people who are prescribed um, opioids at higher rates than the rest of the population and who are obviously at greater risk? So that is actually um, one, one theory to come out of this that just received a couple of weeks ago um, notification uh, that they can move forward. They have a grant from the National Institutes of Health here in the United States to study people at a pain clinic at the University of Pennsylvania. So that study um, just, just started up, and I think it'll take a year. I don't remember exactly. Um, and then a third hypothesis to come out of this work is, well, if opioids damage the hippocampus, um, is there a way to turn that insight on its head and protect the hippocampus. And so one of the drugs that is used to treat um, substance use disorders is called naltrexone, and it's an opioid antagonist. So it blocks the opioid receptors. So would a low dose of naltrexone protect people's memories um, by tamping down this kind of hyperactivity of neurons, which is increasingly recognized as a common um, symptom or feature of Alzheimer's early on in the disease before you've caused a lot of damage. So those are the three big ideas to, to come out of the syndrome. And I think, you know, it makes the point that case studies can be really important, and I think they're often kind of scorned and, and looked down on as sort of second-tier evidence. And, you know, if there are eight billion people in the world, of course, you're going to see something weird every now and then. And, and what does that really have to do with the rest of us? It can't be important. Um, but it can be important because it reveals that there was something you didn't know. There was something missing. And maybe by understanding that, you can get a fuller picture of, of that process, in this case, of, of memory and um, diseases of memory.
0: Yeah, this is such a fascinating story and uh, really important and especially in the light of a recent opioid epidemic as well, that, uh, right. you know, with uh, overprescriptions, for example. But another thing was that really stuck with me is the way that actually researchers approached finding out all of this uh, case itself. So they were acting more like detectives and investigators, weren't they? Very much so.
1: And I sort of thought of it as guerrilla science because none of this was, you know, already in a certain lane of research. Mm -hmm. It's, it's pretty weird to have a neurologist investigating opioids, right? It it doesn't make sense to people. Um, Or, you know, what possibly could the opioid crisis have to do with, with, with Alzheimer's disease? Um, And that's just a limitation of the human brain is, taking in new information that doesn't fit into the boxes that you already have in your head. So it wasn't like an ongoing research project and it didn't make sense to a lot of people. Um, And, you know, researchers already have their projects lined up. Like who has time to suddenly take on something new that doesn't have a clear, doesn't clearly fit into their line of research. So the, the doctors involved all sort of volunteered their time on the side to, to figuring this out. And it's one of the things I learned that, you know, really surprised me is how much of science actually happens in conversations and, um, you know, in, in late night searches on Google. Um, you know, I'm sure that isn't necessarily true for a lot of scientists, but it was definitely true here. And uh, it was fascinating fascinating to me how far you could get with just persistence and, you know, asking anyone and, and everyone for help and um, just just not giving up and thinking about different ways to, to approach this theory. I mean, there are multiple ways to, to test a theory. You can look at it from an epidemiological perspective, you know, what data is out there in the population that might support this idea. You can look at it from, you know, testing animals is there any evidence with, with mice? Um, you know, you, you could, there are a number of ways that you could look at it. You could go back and look at, um, let's say, autopsy reports from people who've used heroin and have passed away. So, you know, these doctors just kind of kept hammering away at it. And it's, it's remarkable that in, you know, a pretty short time as far as science advances, that they went from, what is this mysterious thing that's happening to, okay, it's defined as the opioid associated amnestic syndrome. You know, you you can, it's going into books, it's going into like learning seminars for medical students, people who have this now can kind of go home with the dignity of a diagnosis. Um, And then there are these theories that came out of it that are beginning to be tested. Um, And that, you know, that's personality and it's, and it's luck. That's a lot of it.
0: Yeah, for sure. But also bravery, perhaps, to ask these uh, difficult questions and look into populations uh, which are primarily afflicted by this opioid epidemic, like um, heroin or fentanyl addicts, for example.
1: Yeah. Bravery, curiosity, Mm. um, and I would say just stubbornness. (laughs) Stubbornness (laughs) can be a good
0: thing. So as usual, when we discover something new, we learn something new and you probably learned a lot, new things about memory. So can you tell us what kind of questions about memory really, really fascinate you?
1: Well, um, so maybe not so much questions as observations. You know, we really like to think that our memories are what happened. Um, And it's so hard to accept, but the evidence is really there that there is no such thing as a pure memory. Um, every time you remember something, it changes and it and it changes because it's not you know, a tape recording that you pull out of a vault. It's, as I said before, it's like a network of distributed patterns and so but your brain is alive and working all the time. So even just your state of mind when you recall a memory will then contaminate that's you can use that word. it will contaminate your memory. so, Something that originally might have been a happy experience, if you remember it in a different frame of mind, it, it, it'll be tinged with different emotions. Or if something else was happening at the same time, you might integrate that into your memory. So, you know, memories are are not pure. There's no such thing as a pure memory. Um, that that was fascinating to me. Another thing that was really fascinating is that, um, you know, having a not such a good memory can be a good thing in the sense that you really can't remember everything. And in fact, it would be very counterproductive to remember everything because then you fail to abstract the essential meaning of your experiences. Like, um, you know, if, if you live in an environment that never changes, maybe it's okay to remember everything. But what you really want is, is the core concept. And one of the examples that I use in, in my book, The Memory Thief, is, you know, a soccer ball. If what you're remembering is, you know, the different colors of soccer balls that you saw or maybe the different sizes because you went to a kid's game and then you went to an adult's game, you will fail to abstract what a soccer ball is in terms of its shape. Um, so that's true for memory as well, that you just shouldn't and can't remember all the details. And for some people who do remember, you know, almost everything, it's actually a, a curse. Um, mm. I mean, I wish I remembered more than I do. I think there's there's a happy medium that I haven't quite, that I don't have, but um, it's sort of reassuring to know that it's good to forget, that that's the other half of, of making useful memories which are really there. I mean, they make our lives better when they're good memories, when you can reflect back on things fondly and they create your sense of identity. Um, but, you know, from a very practical perspective, they are there to help you predict the future and to help you make better decisions um, so that you survive and pass your genes on to the next generation
0: yes and this uh, fallibility of memories actually quite counterintuitive isn't it we don't really think that our memories are not um, are not like uh, like a picture or a movie
1: right right and then so you get into an argument with someone about no that's not what happened this mm-hmm. is what happened and you know you, you might butt heads about it and, and no one's lying it's just um their memories became different. Um, which is not to say that there's no truth. You know, it's not like certain memories are going to become completely false. You know, your, your, your memory of the delivery of your first child, the basics are going to be there. But, you know, things can change and can, can change and insert themselves. You know, maybe, uh, you know, the nurse, a certain thing happened that actually happened in another experience. Um, but yeah, memories are, are fallible, and that's that's really important to remember in conversations with people. It's important, you know, to be aware of, let's say, in trials, that, you know, someone's memory mm. should never be, um, you know, the main evidence against someone because, because it is so fallible.
0: But also the concept of false memories. So as, as we learn more, it's uh, quite obvious that uh, it's possible to, sort of implant false memories into both mice and uh, people.
1: Yeah, and it's shockingly easy. I mean, not so much in mice because it's a, it's a complex experimental protocol to, to prove what you've done. Mm. But our brains do not distinguish between, you know, there's no false meter, you know, true meter. Um, it's just patterns of activity. And um, it's, it's shockingly easy to sort of present information to people within a context that makes sense to them and kind of suggest things. And, and while you're doing that, they're creating a picture in their brain of what that is. And then it becomes real. Um, and in, in mice, yes, they've been able to implant memories, you know, fully whole cloth, you know, completely separate from, from any actual experience, um, which, is, which is quite amazing.
0: So if we reflect a little bit uh, more on society, so why humans are so fascinated with the memory and their brain? Um,
1: well, in a way, you could say, you know, how could we not be? It's it's this three pound, you know, ball of gray stuff that is very ugly, frankly. Um, <laughs> you can't you can't tell what it does by just looking at it. Uh, you know, unlike the heart, it's very clear what it does and how it works, or the lungs kidneys um but it's not at all clear you know just from looking at it what the brain does um and yet it's it's who we are like i would gladly sacrifice a limb for my brain and you know you can you can mm-hmm. you can get a uh, prosthetic leg you can get a heart from someone else um and still be you um but you can't get someone else's brain you won't be you anymore so um you know People are fascinated in themselves and, you know, you could argue that the brain is you and, you know, of all the sort of brain faculties, memory is probably the most you, you know, it's how you create your identity. It's how you make sense of your interactions with other people. It's how you tell the story of your life. Um, So, you know, it's hard not to be fascinated by memory. Although, you know, I will say I didn't spend a lot of time thinking about it until I had that, you know, that episode of memory loss. I think, you know, I would think about it in terms of you go to a party and, oh, darn it, you can't remember that person's name. That's what people mean when they say I have a bad memory. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, once you start getting into it or seeing people whose memories don't work, um, it becomes really fascinating and, and also really fascinating how little we know, given, given how important it is.
0: Oh, you're so right that uh, it's easier than to shift your attention to something that we're lacking, perhaps, uh, rather than in general thinking about it.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So have you asked this question to any of the neuroscientists that you met? Are they also sort of drawn towards complexity?
1: Um, You know, I did not ask that question. That would have been a good question. I think they certainly can't be a- averse to complexity, because, mm-hmm. um, or, or I, let's say, they have to be comfortable with with a lot of uncertainty and a lot of lack of knowledge and um, you know humility uh, about what can be known. Um, and I I think they all they all share that. I I don't think you could be a neuroscientist without that frame of mind that it's extraordinarily complex and. You know, people I talked to really, they were very careful about the difference between what we know and what we think we know and how important it is to remember um, the basis for your knowledge. Like, what was the experiment that led us to that understanding? And, and what was it about that experiment that might have sent us, you know, in the wrong direction? Or So never really accepting anything as a fact It's just this is what we believe to be true at this point because of this way that we looked at the question.
0: So you mentioned earlier there were some practical um, implications of uh, what could have arisen from this story, for example, for patients with Alzheimer's. But what are other major practical or other beneficial applications that we can uh, derive from the research on memory and uh, cases of as you as you said, the the single cases like like that that one of Owen. Oh, okay. So
1: I would just say, you know, more broadly, because my book also covers the Alzheimer's field and, um, you know, why it has been so hard to come up with a cure, um, and you know what the prospects are for the future, and that, um, you know, that is probably one of the biggest challenges facing us uh, after the pandemic, perhaps. Um, it will still be with us long after the pandemic is under control. So um, I think the basic memory science, kind of understanding that memory is distributed and that sometimes the problem isn't that you didn't store the memory. The problem might be that you don't have a good way to retrieve the memory. That's an insight that comes from you know basic memory science with mice. Mm-hmm. So that kind of research really provides some distant vision of what might be possible and then in the nearer term, um, you know, the field is slowly, slowly moving away from this the so-called amyloid cascade hypothesis that held that the buildup of these sticky plaques of proteins in the brain that are, you know, one of the two hallmarks of Alzheimer's disease was the bad guy and the initiating event and the thing that if you got rid of it, you know, you would be dealing with Alzheimer's and that has proven not to be effective in. 25 clinical trials, and most people would argue in the 26th and 27th run by Biogen that resulted in the FDA-approved drug AGIHelm. But the researchers I spoke with had a lot of hope about the future, and they said, you know, that, that cascade hypothesis, you know, there are so many more new ideas in the field now, and an openness to new ideas and new tools that make it easier to design smarter clinical trials and to, and to test drugs more quickly um, that, you know, they all said, we're not going to have a cure for Alzheimer's in the next, you know, five or or so years, but we will have treatments, um, you Mm. know, proven treatments that will, if given early enough, slow down the progression of the, the disease to the point where hopefully people will die of other natural causes before they get to that point where their lives are really disrupted by by profound memory loss and the other impairments that go along with Alzheimer's disease. So, you know, I, th- I think at the end, it really is a, a message of of hope. Not to sound cliche, but um, I think to be an Alzheimer's researcher, you have to be somewhat optimistic and, and believe that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. And I and you know, the people I spoke with said, yes, you know, we don't have all the answers yet, but we can see how to get there, and, and we can see that we will get
0: there. Yes, for sure. And yeah, hopeful message uh, there. Absolutely. So what discoveries about yourself and society along your journey to writing your book, The Memory Thief, surprised you the most?
1: You know, I think it was the role of of luck or, or bad luck. You know, I, I was, um, and it's not just a theme that comes up again and again in the story of the amnestic syndrome and just... You know, the luck of Owen Rivers coming across this article and then connecting with the researchers and making himself available for studies that could easily not have happened. Or the luck of Jed Barish um, connecting with an anesthesiologist who had done all this work on opioids in mice and in people decades ago. So there's that kind of of luck. Um, But also, you know, how easy it is to as I said before, like, forget something that just doesn't fit into your worldview, into your knowledge base, um, or to just ignore information that just doesn't, you know, it just it seems inconvenient, doesn't fit. And I was really struck um, as I interviewed people that um, the doctors, people who were doctors had a really hard time accepting that opioids could damage the hippocampus because they had just never seen it. And so it flew in the face of, of their clinical evidence. Whereas neuroscientists, when I, when I talked to them, they would like basically finish the sentence like, oh, yes, you know, it shuts down the inhibitory neurons. That makes total sense. And so that kind of the framework of where you're coming from, it seems obvious in hindsight, but it was really brought home to me. Um, how much of a difference that makes in terms of, you know, what you see.
0: For sure. And it also underscores the role of uh, collaborations uh, of people from different departments. Right, right.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing I learned is that I, I really, <laughs> I loved writing this book. Um, it, was, it was a prison of my own making, but I had no idea going into it, you know, what, what I was going to be up against or, or whether I would enjoy it as sort of a leap of faith. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm, I'm really
0: glad that I, that I did it. No, that's excellent. So are you a fan of medical mystery shows? And if you are, which one is your favorite?
1: I'm not really a fan of medical mystery shows. I, I was a fan of the medical show Scrubs. Um, and there was, it wasn't a mystery show though. It was just sort of showing, you know, the life of a doctor. Um, and it was irreverent and I think, you know, from the doctors that I know sort of true to life. And I, I, you know, I like that slice of life thing. I I did watch house for a little while. And I think that was interesting because everyone does love a a mystery, but it was also sort of ridiculous in the sense that, you know, the the bread and butter of medicine is not these rare, rare cases that one person solves in a stroke of insight. Um, That's really unusual, but it does make good television. But I am interested in mysteries. That That's the kind of television that I watch, but it, it tends to be sort of crime,
0: <laughs> crime mysteries. And the real life story that you uh, that you tell is actually much more gripping even than the, the imaginary ones.
1: <laughs> yes, sometimes truth is stranger than fiction.
0: Yeah, for sure. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time. So can you tell us what are you currently working on and what will be your next project?
1: So I'm actually working on a pilot for um, a television series, um, like a, a half-hour drama, um, fiction, so that I can. It will explore many of the themes that came up in the writing of this book, um, and it sort of revolves around memory loss. Um, but science won't be the main event; that's sort of there in the background. But it will really ex- allow me to explore more identity and how it, it shapes people's decisions. Um, And then I also have an idea for a new book, which is a biography of a scientist, but that's, that's all I'll say at this point. Um, So those are the two big things. Um, And then I'm sort of, um, I'm doing some video editorial work on the side. Um, But yeah, that's, that's my next, that's my next voyage is um, hopefully a, a television series.
0: Oh, those projects sounds very interesting. So where can our listeners find more information about your work and also your book? Um,
1: So I have a website, um, laurenagiri.com, L-A-U-R-E-N-A-G-U-I-R-R-E.com. You can find me on Twitter at LS Agiri and then, or on LinkedIn. And the book uh, is distributed by Simon & Schuster. So if you want to be able to purchase it or learn more about it, um, from independent bookstores or um, local, you know, other chains, Amazon, but other places. Um, if you go to the Simon & Schuster website, um, you'll find the book there or just search it on Google, um, The Memory Thief and the Secrets Behind How We Remember, A Medical Mystery. Um, yeah, so that's how you can find it. I also, um, I recorded the narration, which was really fun. So it's also available um, as an audiobook through Audible, but I think soon it will be available um, through other sort of audiobook sources.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. It has been truly fascinating discussion into the world of memory.
1: Uh, It was really enjoyable talking to you. Thank you so much for inviting me on.